The final report of the Royal Commission into Victoria's mental health system was tabled in a special sitting of the Victorian Parliament in March 2021. This landmark final report outlines changes to create a future mental health and wellbeing system that provides holistic treatment and care and support for all, and a system that is finally co-designed by those who have lived experience of mental illness, so those services have the community, families and consumers at the centre of it. One of the psychiatrists who provided key recommendations for the mental health reforms is Dr Paul Denborough, a director at the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne and Headspace, a specialist in anorexia treatment and a mental health expert who's worked with thousands of adolescents, young people and their families over decades. In this conversation, we talk about the missing middle in the mental health system, why early intervention is so fundamental to recovery and why Paul believes that seeing the person, not the illness, is a more humanist, compassionate and personalised care model that should be available to all who are struggling with complex mental health challenges. While Paul does admit that we are currently living through a mental health crisis and the pressure on professionals has skyrocketed during the COVID-19 pandemic, he also acknowledges that we're currently seeing a mental health tsunami as a direct result of the early 2020 bushfires in Australia, the global pandemic and the increased conversations around sexual assault. But... Having said that, he ultimately does have faith that we are moving toward a mental health and care model that has humans deeply embedded at its heart. A warning that this episode does cover some heavy topics and themes, so if you or anyone you know needs help, you can call Lifeline on 13 1114. Here's my conversation with Paul. In Victoria, we've just had the Royal Commission into the mental health system, and it's come at a time when the world is reeling and in crisis. Uh, Generally, the mental health cases have soared across the world. In Victoria, why have they decided now is the time to investigate what's going on in mental health? Yeah, well, I actually decided before these events. So before even coronavirus or bushfires, it was came to the government's opinion, which I agree with, was that the mental health system was broken. So from that, what they mean by that is that people who were in extreme distress couldn't get the help that they need, or they were people who were having to turn up to emergency departments to get help, which is not the right or appropriate place to get help for mental health issues. I think there's often, was often long waiting lists, and there was certainly a, a perception, and which I think is true, that The most severe, people with most severe illness were eventually getting some sort of help and some people with mild problems were getting help, but there was a missing middle where people with pretty significant problems were either told they were too unwell for the counselling sort of system and not unwell enough to get a full team sort of intensive support. So um, that realisation has been made over many inquiries over many years, but In this instance, the current state government thought enough was enough and said we've got to do something about it. Did you think that as well? Yes, I did. I keep hearing and reading in the reports the system was broken. Was there a time when you believe it wasn't? That it was not broke? Look, I think it, it's a complicated one because it's it's sort of – Victoria's not, I don't believe, any majorly worse than other states of Australia and other countries. So it's just generally that mental health hasn't been seen in the same light as physical health in terms of resourcing or in terms of importance or 
or it hasn't been as well articulated what is the right system to have. Is that because it doesn't win votes? It's not very sexy. I think there's a lot of I think that partly the mental health clinicians are to blame themselves because the government hears lots of different opinions about what's right and what needs to happen. So they'll hear from psychiatrists one thing, they'll hear from psychologists another. Even the psychiatrists tend to often disagree with each other. So it's been hard. So I think everyone sort of contributes to the inertia, if you want to say, about how to get a really great system. You've been working as a psychiatrist for how many years? Uh, well, I've been in my current role for 18 years, but I've been a psychiatrist for about 27 years, I think it is. You were called upon to give expert uh, recommendations to the report. In your mind, when you went in, you were asked to contribute. Did you have your own agenda for what you thought that system redesign should look like to fix it? Yeah, well, one of the great things, in my opinion, about this Royal Commission is it's been a more looking for best practice and, and people's opinions rather than inquisitorial. So, you know, like a Banking Royal Commission or the Child Sexual Abuse uh, Royal Commission were gaining a lot of evidence of what's happened to people and what's gone wrong. Now, there was a bit of that. In so not trying to smoke out the, no, you know, the system itself. No, it was really yeah. about... And I had a really positive experience of giving evidence. Uh, and in fact, the, the lawyers from the Royal Commission side were really trying to help me articulate better what I thought was needed rather than feeling like you're, you know, in the dock being uh, asked to justify why, how terrible things have been. Now, there was a lot of evidence from people who've been in the system, uh, both consumers and carers who articulated what the deficiencies were. But in my my role was, well, I took it and they sort of wanted that, was what ideas do I have to make it better? What ideas did you have? What do you think we can do to improve this system? And I, I asked that not with blue sky thinking. I asked that knowing all too well, and later we can get to, you know, in my family we've, we've had a number of people who have been inside this poorly designed system for a long time, and there's blue sky thinking and there's what's actually viable and feasible and economically uh, what can we achieve when we look at those dictates around system design. Yeah, well, I personally made a decision that I thought most psychiatrists were going to say we just need more money, and I don't actually think that is correct. There needs to be a culture change and a way of doing things differently. To answer your question, to not be boring because that's how I did my two witness statements, which went for several hours. So, But there's a few fundamental challenges in our system. One is that I think half of the money uh, that's spent on mental health in Victoria is Commonwealth funding, so um, essentially through Medicare, which is sort of like a fee-for-service capitalist type system, if you like, where people can charge what they like, people can pick and choose who they see. Um, but on the other hand, there's lots of efficiencies in that because you only get paid if you see somebody. And so often those people, that system sees the more milder problems, but it is a really good part of the system and other countries don't have it. So it's not a bad thing. But then the state system, uh, like the hospital system is more, if you like, communist or whatever. So it's block funded and people get salaries and they, they do have a lot of accountability and, um, a lot of scrutiny, but on the other hand, they're limited and they have to ration them. So one of the challenges has been, this is where the whole idea of missing middle comes in. So the state system talks about you have to be really unwell to get in and the Commonwealth system doesn't want to see people who are going to be necessarily difficult to manage because they're doing it like a business. So you're and it's a, there's a user pays correct. stream in there as well. Well, it's still taxpayer though, so that's the irony. People call it the private system, but in fact, there is obviously many some 
practitioners charge a big gap. But essentially, you can practice in the in the sort of Commonwealth system and bog bill, and that's all taxpayer funded. But it's not necessarily coordinated. So the Commonwealth manages it through a sort of fee for service type thing, as you say, and the state manages that bit through a different mechanism, which is through targets and things like that and also an awareness that as, as a state service you have to see the most difficult and complicated because no one else will so and that's appropriate actually so what i'm getting at is there there's uh, has always been a difficulty in coordinating those two mental health systems if you like mm, and i think uh, that a two-system two health model you know we see that in the u.s and whatever it, it doesn't work it's not equitable and it doesn't create the access to democratize that Healthcare for yeah, whole populations. In, in saying that, I think it can work, and there's. I, I wouldn't like to say it's a bad system because I've worked and been in other countries, and I think in some ways it's a, it's a great system, but it's not being capitalised on. So, for example, where we, where I work at the Alfred, we do have an advantage because we run a a number of primary headspace centres, which are run funded basically through commonwealth money and because the state service like us also runs a headspace it's very difficult for us to um and we can't really turn people away because if people ask for help part of our system has to do it Mm -hmm. but we can't have to argue with ourselves we can't just say go somewhere else because we're responsible for all of it but then there's that rationalism you've got to bring into then parceling out that care when you've got finite resource to yeah, um, but it's still that. it's still better than if you don't if you're not respons like if we're not responsible for the headspace, we can just say go ring headspace and then bad luck if you you know don't get any joy there or whatever. Whereas for us, um, we we won't say just go ring headspace. We'll organise a, a time in headspace, or we have to because there are families or young people that do could go into either system. You know, you could argue, and often we, so we tend to do it more on because we can pull resources. We do it more on. Um, the capacity of each place because and so that there's by having that sort of single governance uh, we can deal to some degree with the missing middle problem so Mm. that's one example of something that we put forward to the royal commission uh, which in fact they absolutely agreed with and took it on so it does mean that the state government has to negotiate with the commonwealth and they've put it in the report but you know i have every confidence that they will so it's it's that was one example of something where i think it's a bit of a no-brainer way of improving the system by not really doing that much i want to tap into what you said before around um that it was quite consultative this report was not to go and smoke out and um expose but really just bring up that lived experience and for that to a fundamental role in shaping what this system should look like so almost putting that that consumer centric model what is the role of lived experience in the way that we understand and design mental health systems yeah well that was a massive feature of this um, commission report and i have a really strong belief that that's the way to go so but what it's not necessarily saying that consumers and carers have to design the system, but it's co-design. So, it, and it really is a difficult thing to do well uh, because you need to have both sides, if you like, equally valued and equally listened to. And um, you want to get the expertise of people who've had some training and also seen lots of people with similar problems and you want to have the personal experience as well and you need both in and and uh, we have done a lot of co-design at, at the alfred uh, and it, it i mean my personal experience is it just makes the service um so much better it, it improves the culture um it's um 
creates innovation. It, it helps you think outside the box, um, but it also brings people who use the service on along the journey with you, and that makes you more credible, more you know, you, you trusted more. There's lots, there's so many more benefits, and it might seem like a and it is a no brainer, but it's actually very hard to do um, right well. And so often mm. in the past, what's happened is you've had consumer or care advisors who provide critiques of different things, but they haven't been involved in designing it from the beginning. And that is a big difference. Well, it's like it's design thinking really, isn't it? It's it taking is. it back to sort of that place of empathy to then understand the problem, to then build the, the sort of solution. So in the final report, there were four uh, sort of key features or recommendations. And one was that the system, you know, it would be a responsive an integrated system with community at its heart, which sounds sort of very hallmark and, and quite lovely. When we talk about a responsive system, we know we've had a crisis-based system as opposed to a sort of proactive system. How do we um, start to move from that crisis reactive-based system when someone is acutely unwell to access a service to one that is more around early intervention? Yeah, well, I mean, the other thing to say is that... Um the Premier said that they would uh, fund every recommendation which he, even before it was started, which was he acknowledged would have been in in excess of a billion dollars, which is a massive investment. So, for example, in the adult system, which is not necessarily what I'm intimately involved in, but they've promised to build 50 to 60 what's called local um, mental health and wellbeing centres, which are sound amazing. Uh, and, you know, if you've got 60 in Victoria, it's not going to be next door to everyone, but it's going to be, they're going to be, I believe, built in with that exact thing in mind of trying to be as local and community uh, focused as possible. So mm-hmm. that's a whole extra layer that they're going to, and they've already promised six, and I, I can't tell you exactly where they are, but they're, they're already underway. So there's another 50 to be built. It's excellent that the model is now being committed to and scaled. Who's responsible then for the delivery of the services within, say, those community Yeah, it's models? a great question. And they've, what they've done, maybe to put a bit of context, what, what Victoria has had in the past is a system of devolved governance, which is essentially very few numbers of people within the department and essentially giving money or resources to hospitals to design and innovate and do what they think is best. Now, there's some advantages of that, obviously, and you know I've appreciated that because we have a lot of freedom in what we do. But what it's led to is incredible inconsistency mm. across the state um, because there's no central accountability or hasn't been any, uh, and that's only because there aren't any people paid to do it. So what they've part of the Royal Commission is that there's a number of different layers now of governance or accountability being built in. So, for example, this, the state's going to be divided into eight regional boards, which, as I understand it, I think the aim of that is, and they have to have on those boards people with lived experience. And uh, I don't exactly know, I haven't specified the other board members, but my understanding is by doing that, eventually they will be commissioning services. So I think it'll be up to them to ensure that there's the spirit and the um, vision of the Royal Commission is implemented uh, rather than just leaving it to hospitals to do that. And, you know, it's not to say hospitals have done a bad job, but they've all done it in their different ways and all regions have their different challenges. So the trick about any of these things is to make sure that you have small enough 
governance so that you can respond to the local needs and be accountable and be accountable mm. and and also but then enough consistency across Victoria because and some of the recommendations they've really made in the Royal Commission particularly in the child and youth area is to create more evenness or consistency because there's been a lot of complaints that it's like postcode lottery or whatever that you um, you, know, you might get a great service somewhere but a terrible service somewhere else and so they've really tried to address that through the number of structural changes that they've recommended. One of the things, Paul, that was, again, one of the sort of central tenets of the um, recommendations was this idea of a well-being system and a shift away, I suppose, from the hyper-medicalised and efficiency-based model to one where we move toward that human-centred well-being at the heart of it approach. What does that actually mean when I say a well-being model? Yeah, so it means different things to different people. To me, it's a really welcome change because I think psychiatry in particular has come out of a, a medical system where people are, I suppose, assessed and diagnosed and um, things are done to them to um, improve them. It's all done in in a hopefully good way. But essentially I think mental distress is much more complicated uh, than that and that's sometimes that way of thinking, a sort of linear thinking if you like or very individualistic thinking doesn't really suit a lot of mental health issues or distress. And so I think this shift to well-being is partly to acknowledge that, that there's lots of different ways that people, number one, get mental health difficulties or distress and some of them are social, some of them are psychological, some of them you're born with, whatever's a whole. Often it's very hard to tell exactly how something's come about but it's often something that's happened to you rather than something that's uh, born in you although you know obviously there's both so I think the eye moving away from a illness sort of disease focus to a sort of mental health issues and well-being is a really positive thing because I think that that's actually my experience. You and I met Randomly, uh, many years ago, I have a sibling, as we both know, who has a very severe mental illness and has um, been really debilitated by that and spent much of his adult life in hospital. In fact, as an adolescent, he was diagnosed and that's where you and I connected. I remember my parents when he was nearly, he was only 14 or 15 when he became unwell. And I remember my parents sort of desperately educated people and loving and people who genuinely were perplexed that this had occurred and they were running back down the roads of their parenting looking for a sign, for some shift, some thing that said this is why this enormous bomb just got set off in our lives. I remember at that time also really trying to make sense of of what was happening for him when we had no maps, we had no playbook, and for every family it's different and I'm sure you've, you've seen so many thousands. What do you say to parents as opposed to the person who's who's suffering the, the illness what do you say to parents who've just suddenly had a, literally a bomb go off in their lives where one of their children becomes sick with a with a serious mental illness well that's a good question i mean what what i will say to start with is every single family that comes to our service i'd be pretty safe to say feels some sense of responsibility or guilt about what's happened and you know 99.9% of the time it's not – well, 100% of the time it's not helpful and usually it's irrational um, because the vast majority of parents are 
loving, kind as your parents are and are doing their best. But it's a natural, some human thing that when they come, they feel somehow they've done something wrong or they've caused this problem. And it's really important to address that straight away because um, firstly it helps and it's not because it's just being Pollyanna or just trying to be nice. It's actually true. So you have to start with that. That's why it's all partly going back to what's their perception of what's happened and getting really understanding deeply your brother may have come in a crisis but often sometimes families are struggling with these issues for quite a long time before they come they've done a lot of reading they've done a lot when they come to us they've usually seen quite a few other people actually and um, they've got some pretty strong ideas or opinions about firstly what's happened to cause this and secondly some ideas too about how to get out of it so it's really important straight away to get that information from the beginning like firstly their thoughts about why it's happened and secondly what ideas have they had or what have they tried because um, they're the ones who know their young person way better than you do it's a bit like that co-design before we're talking about you have to use the wisdom of the parents knowledge of the child as the personal knowledge or personal wisdom and you use your wisdom as a professional who's seen let's say a hundred other people in similar situation or a thousand other people and you combine the wisdom you have to it can't just be the parents we assume they know nothing and they'll just you know well they'll do what they we tell them to do or whatever because that's a waste because you're missing out it's like just professionals designing mental health services it's just leads to not anywhere near as good an outcome so I don't know if that's answered your question, but yeah. it's really critical, I think, right from the start to fully engage and collaborate and understand the position of the parents. You seem to have a very um, humanistic sort of approach by the sounds of it. Um, I think one of the things through many years of watching my brother's journey um, and other, other relatives is that often they um, are just treated as the illness. The illness becomes the identity. And how do you make sure that you you see the person, not the illness, treat the person, not the illness. Look, it's so important. And um, look, we, we have this, I might be digressing, uh, but we have a thing at the Alfred, it's called a Discovery College, where we it's sort of an educational approach to helping meet people with mental health challenges. But to cut a long story short, that what you've just said comes up all the time uh, with families and young people. So you're generally seeing people at the lowest point of their lives where um, they've previously often, you know, 95% of their life is highly successful or whatever, you know, and they've, they've achieved a lot or they've enjoyed life or whatever. And you see people when they're really at the rock bottom. And um, that's, that's tough because people want to be known for more than that. And they are more than that. So it's actually part of recovery is making sure you're absolutely trying to relieve distressing symptoms, but in with whatever means you have available, but also being able to build on the strengths of people. And, you know, people, you know, even the most disabled people will have strengths that you can um, foster or improve. What role do you think medication plays in treatment as opposed to some of the other psychosocial um, allied services that we build in? Yeah, so this is uh, not my original thinking, but this is the way I practice is that particularly in something like psychosis, uh, we have got quite a few um, drugs to choose from, but no one has ever found a cause of psychosis. So in the old days when I was taught, you try and match a drug 
to like an antidote to a chemical imbalance. And that's often true too with other drugs like antidepressants. But in fact, my opinion is that that's not a proven theory. But the drugs do help people um, and help. So they're, but they're working as a drug effect. So if you prescribe as um, like you're, you're trying to help people cope with distressing voices or something rather than I'm trying to, um, so, and you, you prescribe, so enough medication that will, you're seeing it very much as a brain effect rather than a antidote to a chemical imbalance effect. It totally changes the way drugs are prescribed. So for example, you know, some with voices, you might provide a neuroleptic and you, you, sort of titrate the dose to the point where they're feeling better um, and that you're also minimizing any negative consequences of medication, which they all have. So you're you're doing it as it's not quite like Panadol, but it's sort of symptom relief um, and and it can be really incredibly valuable. So it's not like an anti-medication, but it's take going away from that idea that we're actually doing something to some spurious chemical imbalance because no one has ever found one and um, it's not helpful. So, for example, you see some terrible situations where doctors are really trying to be helpful and they're trying to get rid of all symptoms in somebody but they can end up on huge amounts of drugs and they can gain weight and have terrible side effects and it's sort of like losing sight of the or the wood for the trees or whatever that you're, yeah. you're, you get so caught down a track of trying to, counteract some chemical imbalance that you lose sight of actually what is it helpful or not before we started recording today we were talking uh, about the fact and um, where we started this conversation about the world's in in crisis a bit with mental health and there's a tsunami of mental health issues coming as a compound sort of effect of covid and uh, and lockdown and all of those things and you um, have seen a real spike in in mental health uh, with young people can you tell us a little bit about that yeah, look, it's really um, very dramatic right at the moment. So there's a number of, especially in young people, so and that's my area is under 25s, but one area I suppose to really focus on, I think, which is a massive crisis is the increase in presentations of young girls with anorexia. So, And that's not just in Melbourne, that's... Um, Canada, England, New Zealand, um, it's all over and no one really knows why but it's definitely a, a tsunami and um, the thing about anorexia is it can be a terrible condition or you can fix it. So it's um, quickly if you get onto it quickly. So it's such a stressful time at the moment because most of the service is being overrun and, and feeling like I can't um, – help these people straight away and it makes such a difference if people wait with anorexia it can become very difficult to treat actually so uh, to me that's that's a massive crisis mm. how do you explain or what's your theory on why you're seeing this disproportionate number of young people presenting with anorexia yeah there's lots of theories i mean a couple of young girls i try and ask them because um i think that's probably where you get the best answers but often and this is very stereotypical and it's not always the case but often the young girls are in about year nine or ten and they're very high achieving girls who either excel in athletics or some sort of sport or academic and through the lockdown in particular three girls told me that because they weren't able to do their normal sport or um, their normal high achieving whatever rowing or, or or whatever that they worried about what that was going to do to their body and their shape and so then started to become preoccupied with what they were eating. And then I suppose as well with associated anxiety 
it led to uh, preoccupation with food, which you know became unhealthy, and they stopped eating enough. Essentially, it started with a idea of not wanting to become unfit or overweight through less activity. What role do you think the current sort of social media perpetuated societal ideals of what healthy bodies look like or skinny bodies look like? What role do you think that plays in the journeys of of people who have anorexia? Well, I think it is it does play a massive role. I mean, the, the anorexia is a condition which only occurs in countries where um, food is plentiful and thinness is valued, which is most Western countries. But um, which is fascinating in and of itself. It's fascinating. So there's itself. no incidence in countries where there's well. Well, I mean, unfortunately or fortunately, most countries are like that now. I mean, obviously there are countries where food isn't plentiful, but thinness is becoming, you know, contagious. You know, I think there's countries that don't have it. But so I think that whole idea of people on social media comparing themselves to how other people look, you'd have to assume that's going to amplify that uh, sort of preoccupation with thinness, you'd have to think. And you said you want to see them straight away, that that's, that's really important in that model. And we know uh, Professor Patrick McGorry and others have talked about this role of early intervention um, for better outcomes down the line. Why is it so important that you get to someone early in that journey? Yeah, so because um, it, beca- it can quickly become a habit and entrenched thinking and um, usually when someone first presents, it's not entrenched. And I think anorexia is the condition which needs early intervention the most of any condition in medicine, actually, to be honest, but certainly in psychiatry. But um, the other thing is that happens is it sort of feeds on itself in a negative cycle. So the actual starvation itself um, changes the way you think and you become more concrete and not able to um, become flexible and change behaviour. So the physical changes that occur through starvation actually then affect the brain, which then affect the physical, and it just sort of goes around in an awful cycle, spiral downwards. So you want to get... Obviously, you want to intervene before someone's lost too much weight because then there's um, the actual physical changes uh, make it harder as well. How can parents be better supported out in the community when they have got someone they're living with? In most serious mental illnesses, young people, the family should be the client. So we're not, again, if something's really serious, you can't expect a teenager to deal with it on their own. So, in fact, that's a vital part of it. It's not even just... Um, support. I mean, obviously they do need support, but actually we're using them as a vehicle for recovery. So not only are they critical elements in the actual treatment, let alone enough support. And, you know, they've got jobs and other kids and looking after someone who's acutely ill with anything with psychosis or anorexia is, is obviously more than a full-time job. So you're, you know, you're stressed out, so you're not sleeping and, um, hard to get on with your life but you know it's really as you said before another question it's really adapting um trying to throw is what we try and do is really front-end treatment i suppose so throw everything at the beginning because um and that might be in home it might be outreach it might be um we've got a number of groups that we run with other parents so parents supporting other parents and a whole lot of strategies to really trying to, particularly in young people, um, trying to um, make sure it doesn't become a chronic intractable problem. So it's worth throwing everything at the start. With what you are exposed to and the many, many families and people in distress, you will have seen all the 
colour and darkness of humanity. How do you manage yourself? Yeah, look, I'm very fortunate at the moment because I'm, I've got a number of people around me who are amazing who actually do a lot of that direct exposure. So my job is more of a, I'm not going to say administrator, but I'm more running the system and um, that's got its own challenges because, you know, you're uh, managing politics and staff and dynamics and all those sort of things. But I really love that sort of work. So um, I really do love my job um, in saying that, one of my jobs is really to support the people who are doing that sort of work day to day because it's it is very stressful and draining and um you do see some um very sad and awful situations and it, it obviously can affect you so um i think um that's i'm fortunate enough that that's sort of my job is to support those people rather than being directly um exposed as much i mean i my direct clinical work is mainly with eating disorders and off uh, but it's with young people and we've got a system at my work it's i'm really proud of that service so it's actually very rewarding work i don't you know it's tough i'm not saying that but you know it's you do see some amazing outcomes and you know what would happen if you didn't intervene so it's actually very rewarding honestly Mm. um much more stressful sometimes have been things that have happened to staff or things that are happening where someone's going to cut your fund because I'm sort of responsible for making sure we stay funded, for example, or I've got a, I'm responsible for making sure crazy things don't get impinged on our staff, you know, from outside or from the hospital or whatever. So that, to be honest, often causes me more stress. And so, that you know, it's a different sort of stress. Do you have faith in, obviously, the system's about to undergo enormous reforms and change? My view is it's felt like a finger in a dike for a long time. Do you have faith that we can achieve what the reforms have put forward? Oh, definitely. And, and I think we'll be, it'd be terribly embarrassing if we don't because, you know, we've got a government who's promised over a billion dollars to inject into a, into a mental health system, which is unprecedented as far as I'm aware. And, and the vision that they've outlined or that the commissioners have outlined in that um, report is fantastic. I mean, they've really listened, not just to people like me, but to people with lived experience. Look, there's some challenging things. I mean, everyone sort of says, we're ever going to find all the staff to, um, to staff all these great initiatives. But, you know, if that's the biggest problem, I think that's not bad. I mean, eventually we will. I mean, if it's a exciting, rewarding, well-functioning system, it'll attract people. It'll attract people from, to go into mental health. Mm. Um, from uni and whatever because it should be and will be a really exciting place to work, I think. Totally. And I think social workers will be at the forefront of that service delivery model. And I think I heard something recently that there's been a huge uptake into universities to go into that pathway. In fact, it's oversubscribed. So we just need to make sure we've got the education and training provided to then get that, that workforce as strong as it needs to be to deliver to the model. Yeah, and there's going to be a, a definitely an increase in the peer workforce, which I think is going to be amazing because peer workers have probably not been particularly well integrated into the clinical system very well in in Victoria. That, that is probably. Can you just explain uh, for our listeners what a peer worker is? Actually, yeah, so it's someone with um, lived experience who uses that purposefully to help someone else with a similar or type of problem and you know it's incredibly valuable and therapeutic or can be if if the positions are 
sort of valued and well integrated along with the other type of disciplines. So it's important to see it as a specific discipline. So you're talking about social work, nursing, and then I suppose why I put that in is there's the discipline of peer work. And they've also put in quite a um, extensive plan in the Royal Commission for a body or whatever to help provide really modern state-of-the-art education for peer workers. Mm. When will you know you've done enough work? When will you know it's time to hang up your uh... own? Oh, look, obviously part of it's practical. I, I've no, I have no option to financially stop working, so um, that's going to be quite a while away yet for me. But um, I actually don't want to stop working. Um, I really enjoy my job, so it's um, uh, not something I think a lot about. It's probably they'll have to kick me out before I leave probably, which they might, but um, <laughs> um, I do... Yeah, I'm certainly, and I think something like this Royal Commission, I hope, it certainly feels incredibly energising to me, but I'm not sure if all psychiatrists feel the same way because it's going to be massive. It's going to be a lot of change, a lot of upheaval, people's roles will change and all those things, but I think it's amazing. So, you know, some people love change and some people don't like it, but um, I personally feel like I really like change. And hopefully you'll get to see out the changes in the system through some of those recommendations you've made. So this next chapter of your working life is incredibly rewarding because you'll start to see yeah, you know, a so really right. different looking model. Yeah, yeah you're so exactly. Right. We always like to end these chats. Thanks for your insights into the mental health reform and your journey so far in your career. We always like to end these chats with asking our guests the same question. And, and to you, I'd ask probably relevant to some of the young people you've seen over the course of your career. When you think about those people um, that you've connected with and helped along the way, who do you think is doing human really well? So there was one girl I saw in a really difficult situation family-wise and she had anorexia and she very nearly died and she had a very difficult relationship with her dad but she was locked up in hospital and her dad basically sort of went against the system and negotiated her way out of that because she didn't want to be there. Anyway, that had a dramatic uh, change for both of the dad and the daughter. Anyway, the reason I say that I hadn't seen her and I was doing a locum in um, – and she was very, very – she could have easily died, this girl. Anyway, I um, was doing a locum in a place called Newman. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's in the Pilbara and it's a lot, absolutely isolated. It's about as far away from Melbourne as you can get. And I walked into this bar – uh, and she was behind the bar, this girl. It was quite a pretty, you know, not someone I was expecting to see. Anyway, we had a brief chat and um, she totally, the last two years she worked in Newman for six months just to earn money and had spent the two previous years, um, one, one six-month stint travelling around South America and one travelling around um, Europe. And I thought, wow, what an amazing young woman to come out of being nearly dead to living that sort of life. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Human Cogs. We know that being human is pretty messy for the best of us and we really hope these conversations challenge what you think you know about yourself and maybe some others in your orbit. And you know, Mads, as a psychologist, I know I'm having a good day at work when people say to me, Sabina, I've never thought about it that way before. 
That's what we hope your experience will be listening to Human Cogs. So if you want to find out more about other episodes or about this episode, jump on our website at humancogs.com.